Good morning, North Mountain. If you have a Bible with you, I, open, I invite you to open it to 1 John verses 5, 1 through 5. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a blue Bible underneath your seat. That is our gift to you, and you are welcome to take that home with you. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. And this is how we know that we love God's children, when we love God and obey his commands. For this is what the love of God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has, who has been born of God, conquers the world. And that is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. This is the word of God. You may be seeing. Thank you, Sam. You're good. Sam Ness, thank you so much. We get to unpack that wonderful little passage there. My name's Josh. If I haven't met you, I'm one of the pastors here. It's a joy to pastor, and it's a joy to teach. And sometimes I have just great aha moments as I study the text, and it's just a gift from the Lord. And I feel like this passage is one of those. This passage, I'm going to show you an image here. You've all seen this image before. Does anybody know the secret image within the image? I found this out a year ago. There's an arrow, blew my mind. I told my kids it blows their mind. The whole road trip to San Diego was amazing as we thought about. There's an arrow in the FedEx the whole time it's been there, and I never saw it. Here's another one. This is for my boy, Jack DeBartolo, the only one in the room who cares about a bunch of people in Europe riding their bikes. But there's a secret image in Le Detour de France. There's a little cyclist there built into the words that you would only care about if you are Jack DeBartle or the two other <laughs> cycling fans in the room. Why do I start with these images? We're about to read, Sam just read, some words that if you're a Christian or if you've been in the church world for a long time, you've heard all these words. Yet the way John organizes them and arranges them, he has some secret, hidden, easy to miss messages in here. If you skim past it, he uses the word love, he uses the word Jesus, he uses the word born of God. He uses all these images that if you've been in the church world, like you've got some buckets in your mind for what those words are, but the way he arranges these, you can miss a lot if you don't slow down and take your time and really see what he's doing. So here's the things that I want to pull out from this text. You're going to be like, how does this fit together? I'll do my best. Here's, we're going to have two birth orders in here. We got the slide there. We're taking there we go. Two birth orders, two birthmarks, and two images of Jesus. And you're like, what in the world? It's going to be a good time. Here's what I want to do. I want to pray, and I want the FedEx arrow aha moment to happen for us in the ways that the Spirit wants it to happen in our life. So let's pray together. God, we all have some working image definition of you and faith. If we're brand new to this, we've got our presuppositions. If we've been in this for 40 years, we've got our thoughts. And the goal of church is not to surprise or wow with new information. But occasionally the Spirit's job is to refresh and renew and bring a perspective so that we leave here changed. So Spirit, that's your job. I pray that you do that through your word as we listen to it learn from it together this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, 
Amen. So here's the first thing. Birth orders. What I, we got birth order. What am I talking about? It's what's the invisible order of our salvation. What I'm not talking about is birth order of the books. Like I have an oldest son. He is a typical oldest. I have a middle son. I forget his name. He's a typical middle son. I've got a third born who is the rascal of all rascals. And then I've got a baby who is perfection. Just like all the, Xavier made the point the other day. You know, a lot of pastors are firstborns. Chandler's a firstborn, Xavier's a firstborn, I'm a firstborn. That doesn't mean if you're like a thirdborn and you're like, he just dashed my dream. But there's like a, <laughs> there's a level of like where you are in your parents' order of parenting kind of shapes them and shapes you and you become like a firstborn, for better, for worse, like a middleborn, like a, what I'm talking about here is not that sort of birth order. What I'm talking about is this, if I give you this image here. We were all born. No one would dispute those facts. We're all going to die. Everyone understands that. What the church teaches is that somewhere in the middle, there's this salvation chapter to our story that the Bible illumines for us, that the Spirit shows us. But within that little word salvation, there's a lot that goes on. Inward stuff, outward stuff, change, confession of your mouth, change of your heart, all sorts of change gets wrapped up in that salvation piece. What's the order of events in salvation? And John uses the word born of God a ton. I just want to see how he uses it. So if you have your Bible open to what Sam just read, look at verse 1 with me. Verse 1, the Apostle John says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. First one. Go down to verse 4 now. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now here's the non-controversial thing I'm going to say. Christians throughout the world, Orthodox believing Christians, believe that there's a born-again regeneration peace to salvation. That is not controversial. Something in me has to change. Jesus had this talk with Nicodemus, the religious leader. He's confused. He's got all the religious pedigree and resume, except Jesus says, you're missing this one thing. You must be born again. And just like any human, be like, what does that even mean? You must be born of the Spirit. You can't just have an earthly birth. You must have a heavenly birth. All Christians agree with that. Here's where the disagreement and the controversy, and in certain disagreements, very angry, violent disagreements hundreds of years ago. What's the order of my new birth in the chain of salvation? Do I confess Jesus my heart changes, my life changes, and then there's a new birth that's gifted to me. Is the new birth somewhere in the middle? I just want to see the language that John uses. Look at verse 1 again. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you believe Jesus in this room, John says, something has happened in your past. You've been born again. You've been born from heaven, and now from that you believe. Verse 5, he says essentially the same thing. Or verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. We'll stop right there. So here's, if you're a Christian, part of your Christian 
posture towards the world is one of victory, conquering, overcoming, all that entraps and enslaves all of us. You have an overcoming faith to you now. Well, where did that come from? You've been born of God, past tense. You were born of God, and now you have a faith that is overcoming. This is where the controversy kicks in. Swaths of Christians disagree on where that falls. And I'm just going to show you from our tribe, I hate the word tribe, but from our tribe, from our current of water that redemption is in and is influenced by, here's one way of looking at this. It's the reformed view. It would be election. We're in membership class. Me and Xavier are going to teach it tomorrow night. We believe in election that before the beginning of the earth, God elected in his mind those whom he would save. He has this electing, choosing, sovereign way of controlling the world, and it's his. And then in that election, the only way it actually happens is if God sends himself in the person of Jesus for the atonement that we all need. And then there's this gospel call. Paul says, who's going to believe? How are we going to believe? How beautiful are the feet of those who send the good news? There must be this gospel call that goes out. And then there's this magical, mystical regeneration. That would be the born of God peace. I've been born of God. And then how do I respond to that born-againness? There's a conversion. F and R would be faith and repentance. And then justification, being made right with God. Sanctification, becoming more like Jesus. And glorification, one day I'm going to be like I'm supposed to be as I see Jesus face to face. That is the order of salvation. That's our birth order. I'm just going to show you. There's essentially two camps Really simplified, but here's an Arminian view. Not Arminian like what the Kardashians are ethnically. It's Arminian, Jacob Arminius, who said this. There's an outward call. Listen to the gospel. John Wesley, the church that was here before us, citizens, my good friend Ben Pastor, he's of this denominational background. Beautiful people in both camps. Then there's faith. I trust what I just heard, that Methodist horse rider show up to my little town. I heard it, now I believe it. And I repent. And now there's this regeneration, new birth moment. I've been born again. I've been born of God. And now there's justification, being made right. I'm set for heaven and I'm set now. There's a sanctification piece. I'm becoming more like Jesus. And in certain, not all Armenian camps, but certain ones, my wife came from this, There's a perseverance piece, which means you're being tested still. Salvation is yours until you lose it by way of living in a way that no longer shows you're a Christian. So you're given salvation, you're holding on to it, and now you're walking this life, and there is a potential for you to stumble and lose it. But if you don't, there's glorification. So... I know that's like, this is Xavier's territory. He's the master of divinity. But it is important because as you hear me teach and you sense like, what's in this guy's bones? The left side is every, if you cut me open, I am the left side because I believe that's what the Bible says. Ephesians 2 says it this way. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Meaning, This is not how salvation works. It's all of us with our eyes open, kind of wandering around in a room. And at some point, we look over in the Jesus corner, 
and we respond to Jesus. What the Bible says is we're all dead, laying face for dead. And the Holy Spirit comes, picks us up, breathes new life into us, opens our eyes, takes our head and turns it and says, do you see Jesus? Faith and repentance. Why does it matter? Here's what I'd say. Who initiates salvation as you tell the story of your salvation? There's a way, and again, both sides have wonderful people who are going to spend eternity together. But in one side, there's an initiator that is God. And that's what the Bible would say. The initiator of our salvation over and over throughout this book is God. And John says, those who have been born of God now believe. Those who have been born of God now overcome. God did this rebirth thing. We're just now responding in faith to what he's already done. Here's the other thing I'd say. And this is the most convicting to me. Who is ultimately responsible for salvation? In your home, with your coworkers. If the Bible says what I think it says, the answer would be God, which leaves you two options in my estimation. Well, what's the point? If this house is going to get clean because that guy's going to do it, I'm just going to sit on the couch. Except the Bible doesn't make it that simplistic. The way people come to salvation is with people praying and asking God to open blind eyes, enliven dead hearts, your wayward child, your ex, your kids, your coworkers. The Spirit of God is moving, and we, the people of God, have God's ear, and we can ask him, Spirit, move, save, and he will. You say, well, you just told me it's all up to him. It is. But that does not leave us off the hook because we still have work to do. But here's the thing. The order of salvation, God rebirths us by his grace. And then from that, we live new, transformed, and transforming lives. Amen? That's good news. Here's the second thing in this is birthmarks. This is the, that's sort of the arrow that you can miss. This is like the FedEx. Like this is what John's point is as he reads through this, is what are the visible marks of our inward faith? He threw in that born of God language, but now he's like, here's the thing I'm talking about. I'm talking about two birthmarks. Like I just saw my mom, she was hanging out with a friend that I haven't seen, her old friend from like 16 years ago. So I haven't seen her since I was a kid. Now I have four kids. She opens and she looks at every one of my kids. That is your kid. That is your kid. That is your kid. That is your kid. Holy cow, Josh. Those are your kids. They are marked. They look like me, they act like me, they smell like me, they're hairy like me, they're everything me. What are the marks of a Christian? John, throughout this whole book, has gone through a bunch of things, but in this, he's going to camp out on two. There's love, and there's overcoming faith. The first one is love, and it's the first three verses. Let's just read it together. What is the mark of Christians? Verse five, or chapter 5, verse 1 through 3. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves who has ever been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not 
burdensome. burdensome. Here's the order, just so we're tracking. You're born of God, and you believe in Jesus, and out of that belief in Jesus flows a love for the Father and a love for the Father's kids. The Greek language is, you'll love the ones begotten of the same God. Here's the message written by Eugene Peterson. Here's how he says it. If we love the one who conceives the child, we surely must love the child who was conceived. Here's how I'll say it. If you are born again, you will love other born-agains. If you're like, what does that mean? I'll say it this way. If you are a Christian, you will love other Christians. If you are a follower of Jesus, you will love other followers of Jesus. If you love Jesus, I think John would be okay with me saying it this way, you must love his church. You can't separate those two things, especially now in this world where we all get to kind of choose, ah, these people annoy me. Christians are annoying, just FYI, so that's like you're not getting around there. If you love Jesus, you love his church. Like, think how offensive for someone to assume they could have a deep relationship with me and not at all like Aubrey. You're like, you just described my mother-in-law. Some of you, like, <laughs> but that just doesn't fly. You, you better see everything wonderful about her or, like, I'm not going to spend any time trying to cultivate this friendship. And God's like the same way. If I've begotten you, if you've been born of me, you must love all those others that have been born of me too. You've born of the same father. You must love the church. So here's the test of Christianity according to John. How do I know that I'm Christian? Do you love the church? You're like, yeah, I think so. Do you love the church? I'll say the local church. If this is your local church, this group of people. Do you love this? Some of you are like, this is my first day. I don't know. <laughs> Do you love the church as it goes beyond these walls? The church is down 7th Street and down in Central Phoenix. And as you go west, do you love the Christian community God has brought to the valley? And beyond that, do you love the universal church, the Christians who have been saved throughout the world? That's what John's saying. You must love those who have begotten by God. And how does he say to do it? Verse 2. This is a very fascinating little section. Remember, John is very cyclical. It can tend to feel like an old man that's wandering in his thoughts, but it's more like a precise theologian who just has the same story he wants to keep telling. Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. How do you love the church? You love God. We're not going to love each other if there's a void in our heart that needs to be filled by God. Your best thing you can do for this church is cultivate and develop a deep love for God. The second thing you can do to love this church family is obey God and all that he's commanded. You're like, well, I'm not doing that. That's why Jesus came. I get it. And then from that, God says those commandments are not burdensome, meaning it's the best way to live. It's the opposite of what the world is telling us, but it is not burdensome to love God, obey him, and show up and love these people in all their warts and shortcomings. That's what John's saying. Now, I just, as I pray through this, there's often times where I want to insert myself as the pastor, and this is one of those moments. 
Like, what is unique about loving the people of this church? Because church is organic. It's a family. They're all different. They all got their unique quirkiness. But where I sit as pastor, who's been here from the beginning, like, what's going to be unique uh, and make it a little more difficult to love this church family? And I just noted a few things. Here's the first one. Is there's this generational gap here. And you're like... So there's young people, and there's older people, and we're getting more older people. But there's a bigger gap, like under the surface, that maybe I uniquely see. We have younger people who are getting married and having babies. Like you see all the women get up and go to the bathroom, like they're all pregnant there. <laughs> and then they have babies. And then their focus is like, how do I feed this? How many ounces of this thing do I need to put in? I get it. I was there like, I want to keep this baby alive. So we got this young Focus on like the nuts and bolts of parenting and like, I'm going to do this. And then we have older folks. And I'd say the majority of our older folks, 40s, 50s, 60s, with like adultish kids, have deep pain. Specifically with and around their children. So it's like, did God bring this church here? So young couples could have babies and kind of be in a safe environment and just go through life and get them to the point while never addressing this side of the room. I don't think so. Vice versa, I think this side of the room. I mean, deep pain. Deceased children who didn't make it to 30. Divorced kids, wayward. Like, so it's just an interesting, like, wow. We're not, just, we're not a young church trying to do young people things, and we're not an old church trying to appease old people. We're trying to be a church that loves. And I just think you need to be aware of one of those gaps of like, there's some really exciting, fun stuff happening. And there's some deep wound and pain. Maybe like sitting in the seats next to each other right now. It's just, that's one. The other one is the relationship status gap. We got single people. People who don't want to be single anymore, people that are single and are going to be single, divorced people. We started this church off with a lot of young people that went through terrible divorces in COVID. We got married people. Like, it's easy to get in my camp. I'm married. I'm trying to figure out the married thing. I got to do the married thing. I'm married thing. All the while, like, single person, single person, divorced, widowed, married person. Like, if we're going to love well, we just, and I'm, it's my job to be the overseer along with the other elders and pastors. That's not your job, but I'm just trying to make us aware of the dynamics here. We got the socioeconomic gap. We've got doctors. We've got architects. We've got lawyers. We've got transient people who come in every Sunday. It's like it's not, we're not trying to create a space where your type of people feel best or my type of people. We're trying to be the church who loves well. Here's another one that's just... It is what it is. I'll call it the familiarity gap. I asked my wife, what's it mean when you've been married a long time and like you just don't see it anymore? She says, oblivious. I said, no, that's not. <laughs> Familiar. Like, we're coming up on three years. This was an exciting place early on. The excitement is on its... So it's like, eh. Bill Walsh. I know I've got more Tour de France people in here than football people. San Francisco 49ers coach wrote a book and said, coaches have a shelf life of about seven years because then they get tuned out. And churches have a shelf life. This is not from the Lord. This is just culture. 
of like three to five years, and you're like, been there, done that. I know Josh's stories. My RC is what it is. And we got to get through the familiarity gap if we're going to love like a good marriage does, right? And then the one that hits us all, selfishness gap. Me and my wife are watching this show, and the main character, just a total selfish, funny guy, Martin Short. But he says, narcissism really should be more fun than this. Like, we all just got a little bit of narcissism in us. And we don't love because we want to focus on ourselves. And John says, if you have been born of God, you believe in Jesus, you will love the children of God. And these are the children that God has placed around, these people right here. I want to read just a verse to, just to show you the vision of, we're not here yet, but this is where I'm always praying towards for our church. Jesus talks about parties. He says this, he said to this man who invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, remember those two words, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast... Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will all be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Do you want to have a lunch party brunch? Invite people like you. Do you want to have a feast? The word changes. A fiesta, a celebration, a party. Be around people that you would never choose to be around. That's our aim, church. That's what we want to do. We want to keep pressing towards that because John says that's how we know we are of a, of the faith. Here's the second mark he gives. If the first one is love, the second one is simply this, victorious faith. Let's read verse 4 through verse 5. This is some of the most beautifully assembled words you'll ever read. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. There's the second mark, victorious overcoming faith. He continues, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that the world, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Verse four, here's the mark. For everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world. How do you know you're a Christian? You have this overcoming, the word is conquer in the book of Revelation, saying you have this conquering presence about you in a world that is trying to conquer you. Where does that come from? You've been born again, and now you have this victorious faith. A few theologians trying to wrap their mind around this thought. Here's what one person says. Confidence in the divine human person of Jesus is the only weapon against which neither the air nor the evil nor the forces of this world can ever prevail. Another man said this. This is amazing. Once faith is born in the Christian's heart, he becomes invincible. And you're like, that does not describe me. It doesn't describe me. But we're driving out to East Valley to see my family yesterday. We listen to worship songs. And, you know, the guy starts riffing, kind of prophetically speaking. And those of you with depression, those of you with anxiety, those of you, and I just start crying. And I'm not depressed, and I don't deal with anxiety a ton, but I just think of people I love that deal with this. And their only hope is that there is something that will help them overcome this world and the path they're on. And John says, this is how we overcome the world, faith. 
What about the world are we trying to overcome, Christians? Because that's an interesting just phrase that and people in your businesses don't use. Like non-Christians don't walk around and say, how do we overcome this world? They use political language or financial success language or mental health language. Or, but overcome the world is sort of unique to Christian. What does it mean to overcome the world? I read this article over the weekend that was fascinating and so depressing. Here's the title. How America Got Mean by David Brooks, The Atlantic. Here's a subtitle. In a culture devoid of moral education, generations are growing up in a morally inarticulate, self-reverential world. Translation, this world is not good. And it's sort of like self-propagating all the stuff that makes it hard to live in this world. And it's almost like it's just getting worse, like a cancerous disease. And in our unique culture here in America, he's saying it's really hard to live well. How do we overcome that world? I'll say it this way. Here's what it means to overcome the world. Here's the world. The world is this. Your own selfish pleasures that are in you and that are in me. As they get pulled in a direction to neglect others while you don't ever think about obeying God. Like, if we could summarize ourselves, that's us. Like, there's stuff in me that is not for the good of others. And every morning I wake up and I hear it. And I get pulled in that direction, not to love others and love God, but to love myself. And to move further and further away from obedience to God. And John says, we have overcome this world. And what have we overcome it with? Our Not, notice, not Jesus and all that he did. That's what the object of our faith. But where do you get confidence in this world? It's through faith. Overcoming faith. Well, faith in who? And the church answer is Jesus. But John does a beautiful job of giving us two images of Jesus that I think he wants us to not miss. Because here's the reality of 1 John. I'm married to a person like this, so I can say this. Some people read the commands of Scripture, and then God's push to make sure you're being serious about the commands of Scripture, and you're taking an honest assessment of your faith and where you're at. People take that, and some people carry it so heavily. That's not my personality, for better or for worse. But some of you are like, if you read 1 John, you could be beat down in a second. Like I, It says, if, you, if you're a Christian, you'll love me, and you'll confess your sins, and you'll love the church, and you'll do this, and you'll do that. Like... I did that like once last month. Like, how do we leave here, not encouraged in a cheesy way, but in a gospel-rich way? Well, the person of Jesus is brought up twice in here. Verse 1, I just want to read him and then just notice something about John. Verse 1, the two images of Jesus. Here's the first. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Stop right there. Image number one. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah in Jewish language. In our vernacular, Jesus is the king. First image. Go to verse four. Verse five. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of God. 
Why is that fat? Again, you, if you're a Christian, you've been, you read through both those and not pay much attention to where they're placed. But Jesus the King is the motivating factor in verses 1 through 3, which is all about love. How does he motivate us towards loving Jesus? Love towards our family? Believe in Jesus the King. The last two, overcoming confident faith. How does he motivate us? Jesus the Son of God. I would have switched those if I was the author. Like familial language, like the Son of God seems to fit more in a passage about loving your family. And overcoming and having confidence in a world that is scary. It seems like the king language is what's needed there. Why does he do it this way? I think this reason. Verses 1 through 3, love God, love others, love God, love others. Who does he give us to believe in in that section? Jesus the king. Why? Because he is the king who gives us commands to love. But more than that, unique to Christianity against all other religions and worldviews, the king shows us how to love. What is love from a Christian perspective ultimately? Where do we look? We look to the king, the one who had the crown, placed it aside, put on skin to come to earth, to die in our place, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is what love is like, a king who puts it all aside for the sake of love. So when we talk about loving our church family, we must remember Jesus, the king, who tells us how to love and shows us how to love. Well, then you go to the bottom. Well, how do I live a victorious life? He tells me, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? How do you have an overcoming faith in a world that is big, scary, for a variety of reasons? When you're young, there's things to be scared of. When you're old, there's things to be scared of. When you're in the middle, there's things to be scared of. There's a lot of stuff. How do I say I have an overcoming, victorious faith? John says, believe in the Son of God. Well, what about Jesus am I supposed to think about when I think about overcoming faith? Here's what I think about. I want to show you a video. You're going to be like, what's the point? I'll make a point. So this is my boys walking to school. The littlest guy there. See that strut? That's Ozzy. I mean, just, a, just strutting. He's the shortest dude in kindergarten. Can't spell. He can spell Ozzy. Can't read. Gets his shapes right half the time just struts into school every day and struts out. Like, I've never seen somebody with so much confidence. Here's a, if we zoom in on him, here he is. Boom! <laughs> Here's what Ozzy has that I don't have, that Elijah doesn't have, that my wife doesn't have, that Chandler doesn't have. Ozzy has big brothers. Not just one, not just two, not just three. When John uses the language that Jesus is the Son of God, he's reminding us that Jesus is the big brother. He's the firstborn of all creation. When you talk about being born of God, you're all second and third and fourthborns. We're all the babies of the family. Jesus Christ, you can take that off, is the firstborn. And what do firstborns do? Here's what they do in a normal earthly family. They take all the mistakes of the parents on themselves. And all the misses hit the firstborn hardest. 
in Jesus' economy, he didn't take on the mistakes. He took on the wrath. Because our father should be angry when he looks out to the world. If he's a good judge and he's righteous and true and everything that the Bible claims he is, he should be furious with sin. And he should not just stuff it like a pathetic father. He should do something with it. And he did. Except he picked one to receive his wrath. His firstborn. So all of us babies can walk knowing all that wrath my big brother took. But here's the other thing. And here's where I think John's trying to get at. How do we have victorious faith in a world where we're all walking into situations? First time in kindergarten, first time in a new job, first time being a parent, miscarriage number three, death of this. All these situations where we rock in, we are unaware of how to handle. How do we walk in so confident? Just know you have a big brother who has been there and done that. Everything you're going through, he's been through. With one exception, sin. Christians, how can we strut, like with a strut deeper and more rich than Ozzy has? Because when we leave here, we know Jesus Christ is the firstborn. And I'm in that family too. And now I get to strut no matter what situation I face. Amen? Let's pray together. God, give us fresh eyes to see you this morning. Thank you for John's letter and the constant refrain to love, to obey, to confess, and to repeat. Thank you that he has not complicated his message. He has simply doubled down and repeated. And God, thank you for in this section just a fresh view of Jesus, the fact that he is the king who did not count equality with you as a thing to be grasped but set it aside come to earth to live a life that ultimately would be sacrificed and God thank you that he is the son of God the firstborn son of God in this growing family that your spirit is producing and conceiving he is the firstborn and all of us other siblings get to look up to our big brother for confidence and an overcoming faith in a world that is difficult So God, we love you. Be with us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Amen.